On Saturday, January 20th, 1906, at 11.20 a.m., the SS Valencia set off from San Francisco. The Valencia was a well-worn ship, having been in use for more than 30 years now, and it wasn't exactly a hot ticket. The budget ship was known for being slower than its contemporaries and for leaving its passengers a little too exposed to the elements. Although on a day like today, this wasn't quite so much of an issue. It was a beautiful, clear, sunny day in the Bay Area, and many of the ship's passengers eventually made their way to the bow to take in the crisp ocean breeze as the vessel began to head north towards Seattle. For the 108 passengers and 65 crew members aboard the Valencia, the journey began as a routine affair. Saturday came and went, and the fair weather continued as the ship made its way along the coast. By Sunday morning, the Valencia had traveled about 190 miles, and it was around this time that things began to go wrong. That morning, the sun was wrestled away by rain and a thick haze that made visibility virtually non-existent and navigation a tremendous challenge. No longer able to see the shore, or anything else for that matter, Captain Oscar M. Johnson was forced to use dead reckoning to navigate, calculating a rough location based on little else but their speed and a compass. For the next two days, the ship cut through the fog pushing on towards the Strait of San Juan de Fuca, where they would turn inland to head towards Seattle. By Captain Johnson's estimation, they should pass the Umatilla lightship near the entrance of the strait at around 9.30pm on Monday the 22nd. But 9.30 came and went with no sign of the lightship, and so the Valencia carried on, unable to do anything but hope that soon they would see a light piercing through the dark and gloomy night. Two more hours slipped by, yet there was still no sign of the lighthouse. And for good reason. As it turns out, unbeknownst to the crew, the harsh wind and rain, as well as its consequent waves, had pushed them some 20 miles off course. They had completely missed the lightship hours ago, and were now heading straight towards the southwest coast of Vancouver Island. Then, just shy of midnight, tragedy struck. The Valencia struck a large reef, about 11 miles off the coast of Vancouver Island. The shock of the impact sent tremors running all throughout the ship as some passengers fell to the ground, while others rushed to the deck in terror to assess the cause of the disturbance. For a brief moment, the ship was still, lodged atop the reef, unable to move. But then, a massive wave rushed across the hull of the ship lifting the ship up and off the reef as the screams of tearing metal and terrified passengers rang throughout the ship. The impact ripped a massive gash in the hull of the ship, which began taking on water at a dangerous rate. Knowing that his ship was doomed to sink, Captain Johnson ordered the crew to aim the ship towards shore, now barely visible in the distance through the haze, and run it aground. But before the crew had the opportunity to do so, Another massive wave seized control of the vessel, sending it crashing back down upon the reef, where it once again became lodged. Firmly this time. The storm raged on around them. Thunder and rain and waves battered the trapped vessel, harmonizing with the screams of the terrified passengers to create a miserable symphony, and in the ensuing pandemonium, the panicked passengers began loading themselves into lifeboats, in a desperate bid to escape the wrecked ship. 
Six lifeboats were loaded, but in the chaos, three of the overfilled boats were improperly launched, sending their doomed passengers plunging into the icy waters below. Of the three remaining lifeboats, one disappeared into the stormy night, never to be seen again, and the other two eventually capsized on their way to shore. However, despite the huge number of casualties, there were a handful of passengers that did manage to make it to the safety of shore. Twelve men to be exact, although only nine managed to survive the night. The next morning, the remaining men, knowing that it was a life or death situation for the passengers still trapped aboard the Valencia, scaled the massive 100-foot cliff lining the rocky shore and set off into the wilderness in search of help. Meanwhile, back on the Valencia, the situation was quickly deteriorating. As Tuesday morning broke, the storm continued to rage on, pounding the lodged vessel with a constant barrage of massive waves. Men, women, and children were battered by the freezing wind and icy rain as they clung to the rigging while the ship broke apart around them. As the day pressed on, many more passengers of the Valencia were swept away into the ocean, and still more died of hypothermia as they continued to be subjected to the wrath of the icy storm. Then, on Wednesday morning, far off in the distance, the surviving passengers aboard the Valencia spotted a ship cutting through the rough waters heading toward them. The survivors from the first night had managed to get help, and got word out of the stranded ship and its passengers in need of rescue. However, doing so was no simple task. The harsh weather and treacherous reef made it impossible for rescuers to navigate their ship anywhere near their Valencia, and instead they were forced to send two small lifeboats out to shuttle the passengers back and forth from the wreckage. But as they were doing this, one final tragedy struck. A massive wave rose from the sea, reaching above the rock towards the rubble that used to be the Valencia, still with some 40 people clinging desperately to it. The passengers watched in terror as the wave came crashing towards them, knowing that this very well could be the end, and that they were powerless to stop it. The monstrous wave tore through the wreckage, pushing all who clung to it into the sea, where the jagged reef and rough, freezing water ensured that there was no hope of survival. Official sources state that there were only 37 survivors, and that 136 people died in this terrible tragedy. Yet, the story of the SS Valencia does not end here. The accident made headlines all throughout the US and Canada, and had a tremendous impact on the residents of the region. Ever since the accident, the SS Valencia has become something of a legend, with stories circulating of sailors and fishermen having seen some terrifying things while passing through. According to these stories, you can sometimes see the Valencia nestled amongst the rocks, looming through the fog, its passengers clinging to the rigging and holding on for dear life as massive waves rush across the deck in a spectral reenactment of their demise. Still, other stories tell of fishermen encountering a terrifying and unsettling vision in the night. A lifeboat, just like the ones used by the doomed passengers of the Valencia, manned by a crew of skeletons. Under the light of the moon, the lifeboat slides calmly along the surface of the water, cutting through a thin layer of fog as its skeleton crew rows in unison towards a destination that they will likely never reach.
Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to Simply Strange, the podcast. I'm PJ, and this is episode 20. Kind of hard to believe that we're already on episode 20. It's been almost nine months now. Time flies. I've learned a lot along the way. Hopefully, you've all picked up some interesting little tidbits here and there, too. So I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show. Um, I really appreciate all of you who have given this show a chance. The support and the positive feedback has been really amazing, and it definitely helps motivate me to keep pushing and improving the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds as it continues to grow. So thank you, everyone. I, I do really appreciate it. Anyway. I think this episode is going to be a really cool one. I was poking around my little Google Doc full of episode ideas, and I realized I have amassed quite a few nautical stories on there, but I haven't done anything yet that's even really remotely related to the ocean. So today we are going to fix that, and we are going to tell the story of the Mary Celeste. The vast and isolated expanses of the ocean are a blank canvas, begging to be painted. And over the years, folklore has done exactly that, with mysterious tales of ghost ships and monsters and lost civilizations all working in unison to populate the uncharted waters. In many cases, these oddities are just legends, perhaps rooted in some reality, but then allowed to grow and ultimately become something entirely new. The spectral sightings of the SS Valencia and its missing lifeboats piloted by skeletons are a great example of this. But in some cases, ghost ships are much more tangible, and their reality is undeniable. On Thursday, December 5th, 1872, the Canadian brigantine De Gratia glided smoothly across the calm waters of the Atlantic, some 300 miles off the coast of Portugal. At around 1 p.m., the sailor steering the ship, a man by the name of John Johnson, noticed something on the horizon, about six miles away off the port bow. It was a ship. From this distance, it was difficult to garner much detail from the naked eye, but something about the ship seemed off. The sails looked disheveled, and the ship was moving in their direction in an erratic, unsteady manner. Johnson called for the second mate, who alerted the ship's captain on the deck below. Captain Morehouse scanned the horizon with his telescope to get a closer look at the ship. He too believed that something was wrong. The two ships were heading in opposite directions, 
towards one another, so Captain Morehouse ordered his men to continue their course towards the ship and to make preparations to board the other ship if necessary. De Gratia approached the strange ship with caution, unsure of what exactly they would find there and if it was friend or foe. But as they got closer, the crew began to wonder whether it was either. As far as they could tell, there was no one aboard the ship. The sails appeared unattended, the deck empty, and the ship's wheel disregarded. Captain Morehouse attempted to signal the crew of the other ship, but received no response. As they got closer, the men aboard the De Gratia were slowly able to put together more details regarding the vessel. It was a ship much like theirs, a brigantine, meaning that it had two masts, a square-rigged foremast accompanied by a second, taller mainmast. It appeared to be a merchant ship, and eventually they were able to make out its name, painted along the side of the vessel. It was the Mary Celeste. Mary Celeste was a vessel that Captain Morehouse had some level of familiarity with. It was an American merchant brigantine, just like the De Gratia. Its captain, Benjamin Briggs, was a well-regarded, experienced captain. Born in 1835, the son of Captain Nathan Briggs, the sea was in Benjamin's blood. He was known to be a responsible and respectable man, calm and soft-spoken, but a firm leader. He was outstanding in his field, and he quickly worked his way up the ladder, eventually purchasing a share of Mary Celeste, which he operated with passion and care. In 1862, Captain Briggs was married to Sarah Elizabeth Cobb, and in September of 1865, the couple had their first child, a boy named Arthur, later followed by a daughter named Sophia in October of 1870. On October 20th, 1872, Captain Briggs arrived at Pier 44 on the East River in New York City, where Mary Celeste was being loaded in preparation for an upcoming journey across the Atlantic to Genoa, Italy. Over the coming days, the captain supervised the loading of the ship with its cargo, 1,701 barrels of poisonous, denatured alcohol. About a week after his arrival, Captain Briggs was joined by his wife and baby daughter, who would be accompanying him on the journey while their older son remained at home in the care of his grandmother. Late in the day on Saturday, November 2nd, the captain and his crew completed the loading of their ship, and on Tuesday the 5th, they set sail. In addition to his wife and daughter, Captain Briggs was joined on the voyage by a small crew of seven men, whom he had hand-selected with great care. Each of them were seasoned seamen, and Captain Briggs had utmost confidence in their abilities especially in his first mate, Albert Richardson, who had sailed under Captain Briggs in the past. The captain and crew set out early in the morning on the 5th, but it did not take long for the party to run into trouble. By afternoon, the weather had taken a severe turn for the worse. The sun disappeared behind dark clouds, while heavy rain and a strong wind caused powerful waves that manhandled the small ship as it tried desperately to push on. With their pace being severely hindered, and little optimism that the storm would be improving anytime soon, Captain Briggs decided to return to port to wait out the storm. So, the Mary Celeste limped back to shore, where the Briggs family and crew waited out the storm for two days. By the morning of the 7th, the foul weather had subsided, and the Mary Celeste was finally able to begin its journey to Genoa. Captain Briggs and his crew again set out leaving New York City and disappearing into the sunrise. And 
they were never seen again. 3,000 miles away, and nearly a month later, around mid-afternoon on Thursday, December 5th, 1872, Captain Morehouse and the crew of De Gratia finally reached Mary Celeste, which still showed no signs whatsoever of being occupied. Perplexed by the unusual development, they decided to search the ship. He ordered his men to lower the ship's boat and search the seemingly abandoned vessel. So his first mate, Oliver DeVoe, and two other crewmen did exactly that. And what they found would thrust them into the middle of what would soon become one of the world's most well-known nautical mysteries. When the crew of De Gratia clambered aboard Mary Celeste, they were greeted by an eerie emptiness. The usual bustle and energy of a ship at sea was completely absent, and instead, there was near-complete silence, save for the creaking of the vessel as it aimlessly drifted onward, and the wind working its way through the sails. It quickly became apparent that their suspicions were correct. The Mary Celeste was abandoned. First Mate DeVoe conducted a quick search of the ship in an attempt to understand what exactly had happened. The first thing that he noticed was the poor condition of the sails. Some appeared to have been deliberately taken down, while others appeared to have fallen and were scattered about the ship or missing completely. The rigging as well was in very bad order, with various lines and braces broken or missing, and loosely hanging ropes dangling from the masts. DeVoe also noticed that the bilge pumps had not been run in quite a while, and that the ship had taken on a substantial amount of water, indicating that the crew had likely been gone for some time. Furthermore, he noticed that the ship's lifeboat was missing. After thoroughly covering the exterior of the ship, DeVoe then took his search to the interior, where he immediately noticed that a great deal of water had made its way inside the cabin. The skylight was opened, and everything in the cabin was wet. He made his way into the captain's quarters, where he found the captain's charts and books tucked away in a bag under the bed, and a couple of additional charts lying atop the bed, which was unmade and wet, and DeVoe believed appeared to have been vacated in a hurry. Also under the bed, he found Captain Briggs' sword, still in its sheath. Out of curiosity, he drew the sword, but found nothing of interest, and returned it to its sheath and placed it back underneath the bed. All in all, aside from the disheveled and soggy nature of the ship, it did not appear to have any major problems. All that DeVoe could really make of it was that the crew appeared to have left in a hurry, and at some point there appeared to have been a storm. Once he determined that he had garnered as much information as he could, DeVoe and his men returned to De Gratia to report their findings to Captain Morehouse. Under maritime law, a crew is entitled to a reward when salvaging a ship, 
based on the value of the vessel and cargo, as well as the degree of difficulty and danger of the salvage. Upon learning of the abandoned nature of Mary Celeste, Captain Morehouse opted to exercise this option. He put the journey back to North America on hold, divided his crew of eight in half, and together the two ships set sail for Gibraltar, where the captain planned to claim the salvage reward for Mary Celeste. A week later, De Gratia and Mary Celeste arrived in Gibraltar, a tremendous feat in itself given how severely undermanned the two ships were. But there was one thing that Captain Morehouse had not thought of. While it was a perfectly usual thing for a crew to claim the salvage of another ship, typically the other ship had been wrecked or attacked by pirates or befallen some other tragic yet explainable fate. However, for a crew to stumble upon an abandoned ship in otherwise acceptable condition was extremely unusual, and when the salvage hearings began, skeptical eyes began to throw accusations in many different directions. And it was here, during the salvage hearings in Gibraltar, where new details began to emerge that further added to the mystery of Mary Celeste. In the weeks following her recovery, Mary Celeste appeared in headlines from Britain to New York, the strange story captivating audiences across the world as they sought out an answer as to what exactly happened to the ship's captain and crew. And as part of the salvage hearings, this question became a subject of intense debate. To many people's surprise, the crew of Mary Celeste were put under scrutiny and somehow were no longer victims but instead became suspects. On the morning of December 17, 1872, the hearing began. It was conducted by the Attorney General of Gibraltar, a man by the name of Frederick Solly Flood. Flood, as the stories go, was not very pleasant, to put it nicely. To put it a little more bluntly, he was pompous, arrogant, and extremely stubborn. He was a man who, when his mind was made up on something, could not be reasoned with. And from the outset of the hearings, Flood had determined that there had been a mutiny aboard Mary Celeste, and in typical Frederick Solly Flood fashion, his mind would not be changed. A week into the hearing, Flood ordered a thorough examination of Mary Celeste to search for evidence of foul play, and this examination did yield some rather interesting results. According to John Austin, surveyor of shipping, who conducted the investigation, there were some incriminating bits of evidence to be found. On the bow of the vessel, a couple feet above the waterline, he noticed multiple strange cuts in the wooden planks, cuts that, by his estimation, could not have been made naturally and instead appeared to be the result of a sharp instrument of some sort. Austin was emphatic that the ship did not appear to have been struck by heavy weather, claiming that, had foul weather been involved, he would expect there to be more damage to the ship. But aside from what was missing or removed, the ship appeared to be in good working order. And furthermore, there was no damage to the hull to suggest that the ship had been involved in a collision or had run aground. He also claimed that upon drawing the captain's sword, stowed away underneath the bed, he noticed what he believed to be blood stains on the blade. 
bloodstains that it appeared someone had attempted to wipe away. But nevertheless, the stains remained. An additional inspection at a later date also claimed to find bloodstains on the ship's rails. These findings all served to fuel Flood's suspicions, and soon, he put together his own theory as to what happened. Flood proposed that there was no accident. There were no signs of foul weather or fire or anything else that might suggest cause for the ship to have been abandoned. The captain and his family hadn't simply fled the ship as a result of unforeseen misfortune, but instead, they were murdered by their own crew. Flood proposed that the crew had gotten into the cargo hold filled with alcohol, drank themselves into a frenzy, killed the captain and his wife and daughter, and then cast them overboard. Thus, the bloodstains on the sword and on the rails of the ship. Then, they slashed the hull to make it appear that the ship had struck ground, and they escaped on the lifeboat. It was an interesting theory, and it got people's imagination running. But ultimately, it had little merit. For one thing, the denatured alcohol that the ship was carrying was not meant for human consumption, with poisonous chemicals added to discourage recreational use. So, the crew was probably not drinking it. Furthermore, after additional analysis, it was determined that the supposed bloodstains were not actually blood, and the strange gashes in the hull were simply the result of large splinters that, over time, were pulled off the ship by the sea. Ultimately, Flood's theory of foul play did not stand. Flood released Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction, and the crew of De Gratia collected their reward. The mystery, however, was still not solved. And it never would be, although there are plenty of theories. Based on the evidence found on the ship, it seems most likely that the crew abandoned it. But Briggs and his men were all very experienced seamen, and would not have done so unless the situation was truly a dire one. So the real question is, what happened to force the seasoned bunch to abandon ship? When the crew of De Gratia boarded the Mary Celeste, one of the first things that first mate DeVoe noticed was that the bilge pump had been disassembled, and the crew appeared to have been using an iron bar to measure the amount of water in the hull. It is possible that, with a broken bilge pump and no effective way of measuring how much seawater was in the ship's hull, Captain Briggs may have ordered the abandonment of the ship perhaps believing that they were taking on water, and mistakenly believing that they were closer to land than they actually were. Another proposed possibility is that the ship became becalmed, meaning that the crew lost control of their vessel. In the case of Mary Celeste, it is possible that the ship got trapped in a strong current that pulled it towards Dolaborat Reef, near the Azores Islands, some 850 miles west of Portugal. Fearing that the ship would collide with the reef, it's possible that this is the cause of Mary Celeste's abandonment. Another theory, also relating to the water pump, is that the ship may have been hit by a water spout, which is essentially a water tornado. Following this, not knowing the extent of the damage caused by the water spout or how much water had been taken on, Captain Briggs would likely have ordered the bilge water checked, and what they found could possibly have plunged them into a panic that caused them to abandon ship. Perhaps the water spout had forced an alarming amount of water into the bilge, or even broke the bilge pump, causing a false reading. 
Given that the ship appeared sound and seaworthy and had ample provisions, something significant must have occurred to force the men off their ship. Other theories often involve various other natural phenomena. In December of 1885, the crew of Alhama of Arendal experienced a seaquake while sailing out of Norway and abandoned ship. Another possibility is that the Mary Celeste experienced a similar anomaly. There is speculation that a seaquake may have even damaged their cargo, releasing noxious, poisonous fumes into the air and possibly even putting the ship at risk of exploding, which could have ultimately led to the crew abandoning ship. While all of these explanations have some amount of merit, they also have problems too. And to many, they were insufficient. Some people believed in a much simpler solution. Mary Celeste was cursed. And it could be argued that there is some validity to that argument as well. For Mary Celeste did in fact have a bit of a tragic past. Mary Celeste was constructed in 1861, in a tiny town in Nova Scotia called Spencer's Island. At the time, the vessel was named Amazon. In June of 1861, Amazon set sail on its very first voyage, under Captain Robert McClellan. But this voyage was not to go as planned. Captain McClellan was a young, healthy, recently married man. But nevertheless, it would seem that he was no match for the curse of Mary Celeste. Just days into the voyage, the captain fell ill with pneumonia, forcing his crew to turn around and return to Spencer's Island, where Captain McClellan died a short while later, just nine days after having set sail. In 1867, Amazon was anchored in a harbor when it was suddenly swept up by a gale, forcing it onto shore and destroying the hull in the process. The incident almost ended up being the ship's end. Its owners were unwilling to invest in repairing the destroyed vessel, and instead, they sold it as a wreck. Ultimately, though, it did get purchased and repaired. After changing hands several times over the coming years, the ship underwent major renovations and was eventually renamed Mary Celeste. And by October of 1872, found itself in the command of Captain Briggs, whose command, as we know, ultimately ended in tragedy. Interestingly enough, though, it would also seem that the Briggs family was cursed as well. Not only did Captain Benjamin Briggs vanish at sea, but many others in his family also met similar downfalls. His brother, Oliver, was lost at sea following his ship sinking, while two of his other brothers, Nathan and Zenos, both died of yellow fever while voyaging abroad. His sister, Maria, drowned following a collision between her husband's ship and a steamer near Cape Fear. And his father, Captain Nathan Briggs, was killed by a lightning strike while standing in the doorway of his own home. Perhaps between the captain's family curse and his ship's history of bad luck, their voyage was destined to end in tragedy from the moment Captain Briggs and his crew set out from New York. 
The vast expanses of the sea can't help but to incite intrigue and mystery, and while many of the strange stories told in nautical folklore are no more than stories, the tale of the ghost ship Mary Celeste is much more than that. It's a century-old mystery that we will likely never solve. That's all for this week, folks. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find Simply Strange on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you enjoy the show, be sure to follow it on there for updates on various things. It's a wild time, I assure you. And if you really like the show, we are on Patreon also. So if you want some stickers and full scripts and links to sources for additional reading, Definitely check that out, and it's also a fantastic way to help support the show. I will put the link in the description of this episode, or you could just go to patreon.com slash simplystrange. So thank you so much to all the current Patreon supporters. I really do appreciate it, and look forward to seeing some more of you on there. And that's it. That's all I've got for you all this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know on social media if you did, and have a beautiful day.